Hey, everybody, just a quick reminder before we get the show started today that the weekly rundown is going to be debuting at the end of this week. It's going to be a podcast full of socialist news and views. Not only are we going to tell you the who's, what's, where's, and when's, and why's of all the most important news stories of the day, but we're going to give you some insight, hopefully allow you to see through the spin of the liberal and conservative press. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button at the weekly rundown tier. That is $10 or more per month. And not only will you get access to the rundown, but you'll have access as well to our B-sides, which are coming out uh, two to four per month. And hopefully going into the new year, those are going to be coming out on a much more frequent basis to keep that subscriber-only content rolling. All right. Help support the New Left Agenda. Keep us prospering into the new year. And uh, lots of great content coming your way. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that is all over the airwaves in the mainstream press. Although my guest today has a very different kind of spin on it, and we think it's very important to share with our audience to wrap our heads around what's really going on in Russia. Uh, joining us today is Tony Wood. He writes and researches Russian and Latin American history and affairs. He is on the editorial committee at New Left Review. He has written two books now. His first is called Chechnya, The Case for Independence, that appeared in 2007. His second book, which we will be discussing today, is titled Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. No, my pleasure. Good to be on the show. So let's start with the title of the book. It's quite provocative as you lay out in the opening pages. Russia Without Putin. That could be taken in a variety of ways. It could be a political statement of sorts. It could be a demand, right? We demand Russia, a Russia without Putin. In fact, as you uh, write, that has become a demand of some of the semi-progressive elements within Russian society today. So what did you mean by that title? What kind of contradiction there were you trying to capture? Yeah, I, I took the slogan up from the 2011-12 uh, protest that happened in Russia against, uh, well, initially against election fraud uh, and then against Putin's seemingly inevitable return to the presidency in 2012. And so this was a slogan that uh, appeared in a lot of marches, Russia without Putin. But I'm using it in a very different sense, um, and I you know, make this clear on page one of the book that I'm not in any sense calling for regime change, which is one way in which this could be taken if an outsider says it, as opposed to a Russian. But I'm, I'm sort of picking it up somewhat provocatively and addressing it really to Western audiences, Western commentators, and saying that the focus on Putin as an individual is excessive, that so much of Western coverage is geared to the question of who is Vladimir Putin? What does he want? What does he have in mind? What evil plans is he cooking up? And really, I think that this is actually uh, very counterproductive in a number of different ways, uh, and that we need to look beyond that. So in, in some ways, you know, the, the substantive content of the book is really Russia beyond Putin. And so what I try and do in the book is look at what happens when Putin is no longer the central focus of attention. What does Russia look like? And then as I go through the book, you realize that you have to ask a series of very different questions. So Putin is not the key factor in any real understanding of Russia as far as I'm concerned. So what I do in the book is look at 
sort of more substantively, what kind of political system does he stand at the heart of? What kind of economic system has he presided over? What kind of society has been constructed in Russia really since the fall of communism? And then I try and look at what kind of foreign policy does Russia have and what environment is it operating in? So the, the real emphasis of the book is really to tilt the focus away from Putin, which is not to say that he is not important, right? As a leader, as an individual, obviously, these political systems do take on uh, a number of characteristics, or they're definitely shaped to some extent by the by the people leading them. But I think I'm, I'm not trying to say that, that the individual has no role in this system. But what I am trying to say is that Western media coverage acts as if there is only this one man uh, on whom everything in Russia depends. And that is just not the case. Right. So let's go ahead and do at least in the introduction here, in the opening of our chat, let's do exactly the opposite of what you just proposed, <laughs> which is to lay out the life and times of Vladimir Putin. And you sort of start your book out that way. And I think it's actually a quite useful uh, rhetorical or pedagogical strategy insofar as the more that you actually get into the details of Putin's life, the more you discover that he himself is very much wrapped up in the developments that were well underway when he was very early in his career and could not have been uh, this mastermind sort of, uh, you know, this puppet master that he's portrayed as by Western media and particularly in the United States in the midst of Russiagate. And we'll return to that in just a moment, the Russiagate stuff. Uh, for sure, we want to talk about that in great detail. But uh, I guess the best way of dispensing these myths is to talk about uh, the facts, so who is Vladimir Putin? Where does he come from? And what does his career trajectory tell us about Russia's place in the world today? Yeah, that's. A, I mean, I think that's a totally fair question, you know, because he is so central. So in some ways, I do start the book with him and his career because that, that has to be addressed. Um, but what I try and do in that portion of the book uh, is to talk about what Putin owes to his surrounding environment, right? That he's not this sort of strong man who just appears on the scene and then suddenly decides to reshape the country in whatever image he decides uh, it should have. What I try and do is describe his rise to power and describe him very much as a product of a certain environment. So that that's the first kind of emphasis I try and put in that chapter. I, I try and put more emphasis on the shaping influence of the surrounding environment on Putin rather than the reverse. Um, and the second key thing I'm trying to do in that discussion, a lot of the coverage of Russia describes Putin as some kind of Soviet throwback, right? Someone who is shaped by his experience of working for the uh, KGB, as it then was, uh, someone very much formed by the Soviet experience and a certain kind of uh, mystique of the security agencies as a, as a young man growing up in what was then Leningrad. And you know, obviously, these were formative experiences for him as they were for a generation of other people. But actually, I think what is often neglected in accounts of Putin is personally, I think how much more formative for him as a politician and as an operator, the post Soviet experience was his rise to power really took place in the 1990s. And he, uh, he really displayed a series of characteristics that were very useful to those uh, above him in the in the Kremlin hierarchy. And foremost among these was loyalty. Uh, to his superiors. So the fact is that Putin really owes his power to his ability to please Yeltsin, ultimately. And uh, it's, it's significant here that the first act of Putin's presidency, he became acting president on New Year's Eve 1999. The first act of his presidency was to sign a decree granting immunity to Boris Yeltsin, just make sure that his predecessor could not be prosecuted. And I think that tells you a great deal about both Putin's rise up until that point, 
and and also about the kind of system that he was overseeing in the 2000s and that's what i then move on to discuss in the book very interesting very interesting i think you know hey, i just have a quick question has there been a movie made about putin's life uh yet surely there will be if not in the united states or you know elsewhere in, in russia has there been a movie because his, his early career his mid-career i should say is is just ripe uh for some kind of movie the way that he finds himself in the gdr in the early 90s and he's abroad close by but abroad outside of russia outside of leningrad and he, in 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 the you know his homeland is is collapsing in his absence and the russia that he returns to is nothing like the one he left uh 3 or 4 years before so t- tell that story uh, for our audience and uh, t- talk about the way that you outlined in the book, how that was a really formative uh, period for, for him, as you've just mentioned. And so far as um, he's trying to avoid what he sees as the chaos of the throngs of the mob that, that were witnessed in the fall and the collapse of uh, communism, uh, communism. Yeah, I think that is a very significant uh, moment in his biography. Um, he's abroad in the GDR from 1985 to, I guess, 89. Um, which is a such a crucial period in the in the USSR. I mean, he's basically absent from the country at the moment when the system is democratizing, is opening up, when all kinds of discussions are becoming possible, all kinds of important questionings of the past, reassessment of the legacies of Stalinism, all of this crucial stuff, and beginnings of democratic debate in a broader sense. All of that is happening, and he's not there. He's in you know, East Germany spying on whoever he's spying on. Right. He's rubbing elbows with the Stasi, uh, the secret police in Germany, which have been so uh, exposed. Right. Exactly. Sharing building with the Stasi. So his, his experience, he did not really experience perestroika, which I think was, was formative for a lot of, uh, you know, Russians of his age uh, in that sense. So when he returns to the USSR, it's to something that is already, you know, in about to collapse. And it's a very different climate from the more hopeful phase of the mid-1980s. It's, it's very rapid, this transition from a kind of hopeful opening under Gorbachev to a kind of, you know, downward economic spiral and increasing political disintegration after like 1989, 1991. So, I mean, I think there's a way in which, just your question about whether anyone's made a movie, I think uh, it is a good subject for a movie, certainly, but because Putin is such a sort of dominant figure, um, and a figure that has been so effectively demonized. I don't think you could make a good movie about him now. You don't think he could be a sympathetic figure uh, in terms of uh, having that collapse around him and then rising again in the in the ashes of the old regime? Yeah, I think you, well, you'd have to have him be a somewhat uh, sympathetic figure or at least to have some kind of understanding of how his mind worked. And one of the things that's interesting to me about, you know, there's been an awful lot of books written about Putin and everyone is very obsessed even in, you know, uh, op-ed pieces about what he's thinking, but no one actually knows. We, no one has any real access to this man's interior life. And the, the one of the things I point out in the book is that, you know, there are journalists who've gone and done serious work and talked to his school friends, his teachers, you know, Masha Gessen has done this, uh, Stephen Lee Myers has done this in their, you know, books on Putin. But a lot of the biographical information on which our sense of Putin is based comes from an autobiographical book he produced in the year 2000 when he uh, first became president. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book is is treated as if it's a kind of 
a source of information. But of course, it's a carefully curated document that this man produced on ascending to the presidency of this very large and powerful country. So, you know, I don't think we have access to Vladimir Putin as a person. We have him, he's already, he's always already an artifact of his own mythology, if you like. So that might be one, another reason why there's no, there's no movie, because we'd have to wait until he retired and we had access to some diaries or papers, assuming he keeps any of that any documents like that. Um, and we don't have any real interiority to this man, you know? Mm -hmm. So one way to trace his, not only his rise, but also the development of the very kind of peculiar uh, state that emerged in post-communist society in Russia, a state that is very much contrary to popular, it's popular representation in the Western media, a state's very much dedicated to the maintenance of a certain kind of uh, capitalist development one that certainly has many times over taken precedent over any kind of uh, democratic aims in that in that society um which is not you know as we know the crisis of american capitalism and global capitalism abroad democracy oftentimes takes a back seat so at the same time we want to note the kind of uh, interesting and specific development inside of that social formation but also not render it totally exceptional this is, a, as we well know, this is a feature of global capitalism. <laughs> Democracy takes a backseat to capitalist development. But in Russia, there's a very specific kind of capitalist development that emerges from the ashes of the communist society, a very kind of unique form of what you might call primitive accumulation, classic primitive cum accumulation, accumulation by dispossession. Talk to us about that. And Putin finds himself very quickly in the employ of Anatoly Sobchak when he leaves the K KGB. Uh, the former KGB. So talk to him. Uh, talk. Let's talk about his rise there and spell out. I thought it was very interesting how his his dealings with the rising emerging business class in St. Petersburg really uh, shape uh, the kind of president that he would become and prime minister that he would become uh, with the way that he has been so adept at keeping uh, the moneyed interests in Russia in check. Uh, time and time again, or at least that's the that's the image that he would like to portray of himself as kind of uh, holding his hand over the you know the oligarchs and keeping them in check when necessary. So let's walk us through that development and talk to me about how that became uh, formative for him. Yeah, sure. I think I mean one of the things to bear in mind. I mean, you mentioned the the particular forms that uh, capitalism has taken in Russia. I mean, I guess two specific features that I would single out. One is the sheer speed of the transformation from a state socialist, a crumbling, but nonetheless state socialist system to a free market system. It happened with just remarkable speed and it was very traumatic for a lot of people it involved, you know, sudden impoverishment, a lot of sudden unemployment, massive underemployment as well. People forget that people were was still working but you know they didn't receive wages for six months or a year at a time so they don't show up in unemployment statistics because they're still employed but technically this is just working poverty basically and that continued for the first half of the 90s so this this is a very wrenching period of social transformation i think you know you can really compare it with the great depression in the u.s but multiply it by a factor of several you know um so that's the context in which this new system is taking shape. And one of the things that's very distinctive about the new order that emerges in Russia is the close relationship between state power and private capital. 
Um, there's an amazing quote, which, I mean, various other people have used it, but I use it too in the book, where um, the banker Piotr Aven, who's the former chairman of Alpha Bank, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you don't need any special talents to become rich in Russia. You get a juicy contract from a ministry or, you know, you get allowed to run the accounts for a, a given government department. And the, the phrase that really sticks in people's minds, and this is why they keep using the quote, is that he says, uh, you are appointed a millionaire. Mm, right. Um, and so there's that that close relationship between political power and private wealth is there from the start in the 1990s. And it continues in the 2000s. And I, I, I want to emphasize this because there's a very widespread impression that the 1990s was an era of sort of chaotic, uh, you know, freewheeling profit making. And yeah, sure, some rules were bent, but what were the rules anyway? And these oligarchs uh, made their fortunes amid the chaos. And then in the 2000s comes a wave of cronyism and it's only people connected to the state who can make money. But actually what you're looking at is really a, a a continuous period in which people with connections to the state of one kind or another are the ones who make money. The question is, what is the nature of that connection and what is the relative power of the state, you know, in that period? I mean, another good example is Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the former owner of the oil company Yukos, who was put in jail for 10 years by Putin and became a kind of an icon of liberal resistance and certainly was idolized in the Western press. But he, he very quickly, even in the 1980s, moved into banking. He saw that there was profit to be made from the symptoms of the Soviet state's collapse, essentially. And during the 1990s, he admitted that one of his banks was actually structured to mimic the structure of government ministries because that was where they were getting all of their funds from. They were managing the accounts for different government departments, and, and that's how they you know, profited. And then from that, he then went and bought an oil company. So the, the sort of the, the parasitic nature of this new capitalist class on the state is something that really needs to be emphasized. I guess the other thing I would say is that there is a close connection in this period in the early 90s, precisely because it's a period of breakdown in which the legal environment is, is somewhat unclear, that there's a breakdown in the formal authority of law of the state. And so there is a close interaction between the security forces, business and crime. And that is something that becomes very clear in Putin's early career in St. Petersburg. He's working as the deputy to the mayor of, uh, well, initially Leningrad, and then it's renamed St. Petersburg in 1992. But he is, he's the deputy to the mayor. He's responsible in particular for business contacts between the city government and foreign businesses. He also oversees a number of other kind of contracts, uh, and many of which end up having very dubious outcomes. You know, the state, the city government rather, you know, pays money for contracts for foodstuffs that never materialize, or there are enormous kickbacks on a contract. And this is well documented by a number of different sources. But And I think this is often cited as a case of, oh, Putin is involved in very corrupt dealings, what a corrupt man. And which is certainly true, but I think you need to look at this as a kind of structural symptom that this is the nature of the Russian state that is emerging in that period. Yeah, so what Putin learns in this phase is that you can use all kinds of methods to protect the principle of private profit, and the state is one of those weapons, right? So I think that lesson is something that you can see being transferred, you know, throughout his rule, that there is a close relationship between power and money. 
I think that, you know, this is a really, it's important that we get to the uh, material aspects of state development and the integration of the economic and the political and the institutions in Russian society in the 1990s. Because as you write, uh, if we only focus on ideology, we're not getting the full story. And in fact, we might uh, be getting uh, quite the opposite story of what the material narrative tells us and implies. You write Boris Yeltsin as the dismantler of the Soviet system, could openly embrace the ideology of the free market as the necessary instrument of the transformation he was pushing through. Of course, that's an ideological claim, right? We know Yeltsin uh, played a very different sort of role in that very uh, violent uh, sort of proto, not uh, sort of neoliberalism sped up. Uh, perhaps you make a quarrel with that. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that formulation. But then you say about of Putin. Uh, Putin, though he had come to power as the guarantor of the system's continuity, presented himself as someone who would undo the excesses of the 1990s. And so really what we have here is a battle that's sort of uh, being waged in the ideological realm, and it doesn't really capture the dynamics and the continuities that are in play from that transition. So talk to us about uh, the, the way that this Yeltsin image as this free marketeer and the oligarchs sort of coming about their money through, you know, I don't know, gumption and stick perhaps <laughs> rather than <laughs> uh, grift and outright uh, theft. It, taking us into Putin in the, in the 2000s where he seemed to be uh, bringing back the communist system in a different kind of way than, than what the material story tells us. Yeah, I mean, one of the the things I try and, and undo in the book is is this idea of a of a rupture or a contrast, if you like, between the Yeltsin era and the Putin era. Um, and so, and and this applies in a number of realms, you know, the political and the economic. I think ideologically, certainly, there is a contrast. They, they have very different, you know, uh, tonalities, very different motifs, and and Putin certainly plays more to Soviet nostalgia, as I'm as you just mentioned. Um, than, than Yeltsin did. Um, I mean, I, I borrow a term from the Russian political scientist Dmitry Fordman, who came up with this idea of imitation democracy, uh, which is uh, refers to a political regime uh, that is nominally democratic and is required to have elections every once in a while for the purposes of legitimation. Um, but substantively, um, it can't permit any opposition party to come to power, right? So there is this fundamental contradiction between the ideological form of the regime and its substantive content, which in the Russian case is a state that is overseeing a transition from a state socialist model to a neoliberal capitalist one. And and the reason this regime takes that imitation democratic shape is that um, it can't really win a mandate a popular mandate for this program of transformation. There's no Russian government that has like straightforwardly said what they're going to do, you know, in terms of shock therapy, the Yeltsin administration never won a popular mandate for a program of free market transformation, or at least not for the one that actually happened. Uh, Yeltsin was elected in June of 1991, calling for a quite vaguely worded economic reform uh, and it was only in October that he announced what became known as shock therapy, uh, which was much more drastic than people have been prepared for and caused a great deal of suffering. Uh, and since then, no Russian presidential candidate has said openly, yes, we're going to push through a neoliberal transformation uh, and take apart the social welfare apparatus of the Soviet system. So 
even in a somewhat rigged system, they couldn't risk that. Um, right, right. So, but there is a sort of fundamental problem for these regimes, which is that they 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 can't stop. They're so committed to the program of capitalist transformation uh, that they can't allow democracy to get in the way, as you, as you mentioned in your question. I think the um, so there is that element of continuity between the Yeltsin and Putin regimes uh, in that they they these are successive stages in the evolution of the same system. That's what I try and describe in the book that for all the ideological contrast between these two uh, phases, uh, they're still, it's still fundamentally the same system that's growing and consolidating and developing. Economically, there is more of a contrast in terms of what was happening to Russia at that point, right? The, um, the early 90s is a very deep economic depression after the collapse of the USSR. The other key variable here is that oil prices are historically low from you know the late second half of the 1980s through most of the 90s. Oil prices are not at a level that is helpful for the Russian budget. And so the state is, in addition to the neoliberal project of transformation and the economic depression sort of sucking money out of the state, and in addition to phenomenal corruption happening, uh, there is just not that much coming in in terms of oil revenue. It's only after 1999 and when Putin comes to power that oil prices rise again, uh, and so the state is fundamentally in a different position relative to what it was in the 1990s. So what you have in the 2000s is a much more benign economic climate for the Russian state, much greater oil revenues coming in, and also an economic recovery from the depths of the crisis in 1998. So, sorry, in, in the 1990s. So really, these are sort of contrasting economic periods in Russia that underpin the development of the same political system. That's what I'm trying to describe, if that makes sense. Spoken like a true man of the New Left Review. So you've got your political realm, you've got your economic realm, you've got your ideological realm. <laughs> That's good. That's good stuff. Your, your uh, Althusserian roots are showing. I like it. That we're, that's you're in good uh, good company here on Dead Planet Society talking like that. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, so much to talk about, so much to consider. Uh, we could talk about you know Yeltsin rolling tanks on his own parliament. You know, in ninety four that was during the shock therapy. Is that right? Uh, when he sort of uh, ninety three, uh, he led an assault. Is what I'm talking about. People should go back and look into this. It's it's an absolutely astonishing chapter in the history of global neoliberalism that's oftentimes looked over in large part in the United States because uh, of the political cover that the Clinton administration provided uh, to Boris Yeltsin during that time to kind of whitewash his crimes and present him as this, you know, humanitarian figure, this anti-communist pro-liberty, you know, uh, pro-capitalist figure rather than this sort of bumbling drunk that he was, kleptocrat. But perhaps you have uh, much more to add. 1993 is really an important moment for the evolution of this, uh, of the post-Soviet system, the uh, imitation democratic system, as as I've called it, barring uh, Dmitry Foreman's terminology. Because, um, and the key thing to bear in mind here is that up until 1993, Russia is still operating under the previous constitution, which granted certain powers to the parliament that balanced against those of the president. So you have a kind of a constitutional tussle between the executive branch and the legislative branch, um, which is posing some kind of challenge to Yeltsin's economic agenda at this point and risks derailing it. 
And so what happens in 93 is that he, uh, he sends tanks to, you know, literally bomb the parliament into submission. Um, and then at the end of 1993, in December of that year, there's a new constitution that gets approved in a referendum, which uh, there's evidence that there was substantial rigging involved in that. Um, and this new constitution grants much greater powers to the presidency than before. So this is an, a super presidential constitution uh, for example, the Russian president appoints the government, right? You can, you can be the main party. You can win an election, essentially be the largest party in parliament and still not have any guarantee that you will form the government because the president appoints the government, uh, and fires it at will more or less. So this is a hyper presidential constitution. And the reason I, I go on about this at length is that all of the instruments of Putin's rule that uh, are highlighted as a, as examples of creeping authoritarianism, of the long arm of the state, of the overweening executive. All of these things were laid down by Yeltsin in 1993. Putin's mm. use of power is entirely legal. It's entirely within the constitution. The point is that when Yeltsin was doing it in the rest of the 1990s, everyone in the West approved of it. And when Putin is doing it in the 2000s, they don't agree. But uh, constitutionally, it's the same structure. Mm. So I think this this figures into a little transition into the latter half of the the book and the topic and bringing us into our, our, our contemporary moment. Um, you you talk about how there was a, a a sort of blip in the radar screen, an historical uh, radar screen, an, an alternate possibility wherein uh, the elites and uh, the political class certainly and absolutely the economic class in Russian society were were quite ecstatic, quite excited about the possibility of being integrated with the Western capitalist world, not only in terms of economic relationships, but also uh, geopolitical relationships. And then, of course, the development and their exclusion in the NATO formation throughout the 1990s kind of uh, revealed to uh, certain elements in the political class that this was always going to be a one-sided affair, and that Russia was always going to be the odd one out in in these um, in these arrangements in these um, so called relationships, and Putin comes along and represents a certain kind of reaction to that uh, Western exclusion of Russia. Uh, to narrate that for us, tell us how that happened and, and what you make of of those developments for what Putin would become and how he 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 comes to kind of personify that kind of exclusion and those results in a certain sense. Mm -hmm, sure. There is a long-standing pro-Western current within Russian thought, within the Russian policymaking elite. Um, and this pro-Western current really came to the fore under Gorbachev. Um, and it was the strong influence of, of that mode of thinking. Uh, it was actually in Russia, this current was known as the new thinking, uh, that was behind the, the, the push to, to negotiate an end to the Cold War uh, with, with Reagan's US uh, and the rest of the West. And in the 1990s, this pro-Western current was really dominant uh, in Russia. And the impulse at that point was to just join with structures that the West had. And I think one motif that, that comes through here is that to a certain extent, the Russians, at some, on some level, I think, believe that the Cold War was genuinely a contest between ideological systems. And so that when the Cold War is over, and there is only one system 
i.e. global capitalism, then there is no reason for states to have antagonistic relationships. I think on some level, the westernizers in Russia certainly believe that. So after the Cold War is finished, there is no reason why we couldn't join with the West. Um, but of course, what happens over the post-Cold War period is that it becomes clear that we're in a slightly less predictable period. We're in a slightly less predictable phase uh, in which there are contending blocks of states maneuvering for position underneath the overarching dominance of the US. And this gradually dawns on the Russian policymaking elite. Um, but one of the things I try and emphasize in the book is that that pro-Western orientation continues in Russia for much longer than people realize. Putin himself, in the year 2000, asked Clinton what he thought if about Russia joining NATO. And Clinton said he would personally be in favor, but Clinton was already on his way out, so it really meant nothing. But um, Putin himself continued this impulse to have some kind of integration with the West, some closer relationship with Europe. Russian foreign policy documents are full of references to Russia's place within European civilization, like it's very Western focused. And that continued for all of the 2000s through Putin and through the presidency of Dmitry Medvedev. And so really what is happening over this period is that a gradual realization on the part of the Russian policymaking elite that there is, there is no space for Russia within any of the Western structures, right? They keep thinking we can negotiate some kind of connection, some kind of deal, some kind of space, but um, it becomes clear that that's not possible. I should also say that even though in hindsight it does seem as if there was this sort of long-standing Western design and that NATO expansion was this sort of coherent, sort of monotonous strategic push dating from the end of the Cold War, there was significant dissent within the West as well about NATO expansion. So this was not, it was not guaranteed that that view would win out. It had a lot of advocates against it, quite influential people, uh, including uh, George Kennan, who was the original architect of Cold War containment. He thought NATO expansion was a terrible idea because it would needlessly antagonize Russia. Uh, he called it, uh, I think he wrote an op-ed at the time in like the early 90s called A Fateful Error. So there were figures within the U.S. foreign policy elite who thought that NATO expansion was was going to be counterproductive in the long run. And I have to say that that's been proved correct, that essentially NATO expansion into Eastern Europe has been the main factor in generating an antagonistic nationalistic response from Russia. So in other words, it's NATO expansion that has generated the outcome it was designed to protect against, if you see what I mean. And in the 2000s, obviously, NATO expansion is happening, and Russia is increasingly frustrated with both the West's unwillingness to take its interests into account and Russia's incapacity to do anything about it. And so what you see creeping in, and you know this happens at a number of summits, Putin makes these slightly spiky speeches, it's just a, a frustration, really. The dynamic is one of Russia wanting to make connections with the West and being locked out. And so they respond with increasingly aggressive attempts to carve out a space for themselves or block the West's interests, block the West's designs. And that dynamic has just continued to play out and get worse and worse and obviously reach a, reaches a massive peak with the Ukraine crisis in 2013-14. And at that point, really, I, in the book, I situate that as a really important rupture where that's the moment where I think 
definitively Russia decides, okay, there is never going to be any place for us within the West. We'll have to, we're on our own. We have to look somewhere else. Right, right. I think one of the objections that that framing, although I think that framing is very plausible and very uh, persuasive, one of the objections that I'm, if you haven't gotten it yet, I feel like you're, you're, it's inevitable. And I'm sure that you have. I haven't unfortunately looked into the critical reception of this book is that you are propo- you're presenting Putin as a spurned lover, as a man who has no projections of self uh, or of country in the world. And that you could be, therefore, underselling his kind of uh, quasi-imperial dreams that could go back to the sort of uh, uh, revanchist feelings that emerge in Russian society after the collapse of uh, communism. The sort of shame uh, and, and the feelings of the loss of pride in country. Now, that, that's, that's, some, that's a, a, an objection that I'm sure you, you have gotten and you will get. What do you make of that? Because surely as uh, – I don't know if it's Lenin or Trotsky who said this most often as he's sort of bending the stick in one direction in favor of addressing the kind of political and ideological climate of the day. And sure, certainly you even acknowledge that you are bending the stick in, in one direction uh, um, qu- uh, at least a little bit. What do you make of folks who, who would bend the stick in the other direction to suggest that, sure, perhaps we are a little hard on Russia at times. But it was always to push back on on their quasi-imperialist motives that were underlying all of these calculations. Yeah, no, I think that's that that's a reasonable point. I mean, I think one of the things that that I would say to to push back against that a bit is that it's really not that I'm framing Russia as some, you know, perfectly purely intentioned actor who has been needlessly spurned by the cruel West. I think the important thing to bear in mind is that there's, there's this, I think a lack of awareness in the West of the relative power of these blocks of States, right? That there is this perception that Russia is this malevolent force that is able to just and willing to leap into Eastern Europe and invade at will. Whereas the West is just sitting there peacefully minding its own business. And I mean, that's wrong on a number of different levels, but also I think it really, uh, overestimates the, the capacity Russia has as well as the interest Russia has in physically intervening beyond its borders. Um, so I think, I mean, the idea, for example, that Putin is bent on reconstituting the Soviet Union physically by invading the Baltic states, uh, I don't see any real evidence for that. I can imagine that Putin himself and the Russian elite would love to encourage that idea because it magnifies their power tremendously, much beyond what they're actually capable of. So there's a double game going on here, right, where there's a, a threat inflation suits a number of actors on both sides of this divide. But if you look at what Russia is actually capable of doing militarily, uh, what its uh, economic weight in the world economy is, what its its dependency on its trade with Europe, with Western Europe as well as Eastern Europe, you know, none of these things are in Russia's interests. And yes, they do things that are not in their interest, including, I would say, the annexation of Crimea, not at all in Russia's interests. But um, I guess also one of the things about the the effect of that structuring environment is it's essentially the West that structures the environment in which Russia operates. And therefore right, right. the decisions that Russia is making are largely shaped by constraints that are imposed on it from the outside. So this is not really to do, this is not a moral judgment 
uh, or an ethical judgment about who is spurning whose advances per se. It's more a question of what kind of actions are available to Russia in this situation. Um, the thing I would also say is that there is, and again, this is not to defend any idea that Russia has some right to a, a sphere of influence, some kind of you know post-Soviet Monroe doctrine. I don't think that's legitimate uh, at all. But there is a real question that I would put to Western policymakers, which is what role do you imagine Russia will have and what would an acceptable policy on the part of that Russian elite look like, right? And certainly there are a number of things they could do that would be acceptable uh, to the West that would not be a huge problem for Russia to do. But in the long run, what is it that they actually want Russia to be? What is it they want Russia to do? And if the answer is really they want a fully subservient country with an elite that does what it's told, then, you know, that's really not a good idea and that's not going to happen. Um, given that that's not going to happen, then you have to deal with Russia as it is and it's a state that will push back, right? And I guess that's something I try and describe in the book as well is that Russia is in this awkward intermediate position where on the one hand, it's certainly not strong enough to pose an independent challenge to US power or even to, you know, NATO European power on the world stage. But it's also not a small country and not a weak country in, in the global scheme of things. So on the one hand, it has interests that it seeks to defend, but it, it can't by itself transform the environment in which foreign policy choices are made. Right. So you pointed to the way in which the ideology that the West uh, purveys about Russia is also taken up by Russian elites and Putin himself to try to sort of uh, overestimate, try to big up the role of Russia in the world. And it's just not accurate if you look at this sort of material uh, material field of, of power and resources. I think, you know, one of the things that gets circulated on social media, for example, uh, every now and then is, is a map of, uh, you know, U.S. and Western military bases that surround the Russian border and the so-called would-be Russian sphere of influence and, and the disproportionate distribution of military resources is just staggering uh, when you look at it on a map, for example. And yet ideologically, the story that you just presented there, that narrative that's wielded by both sides just doesn't capture that imbalance of forces. And I think it really obscures our vision in terms of understanding the options that, like you said, uh, Russia and Putin have at their disposal. A couple final questions there. You, know, you can sort of uh, – I can get your input on that uh, in just a moment. But perhaps the big question here, one of the, the, the big implications, the, the sort of hypothesis that your book uh, puts forward will be tested in a sense. But what's your speculation here on this? Can Russia survive the loss of Putin? What will become of Russia as we know it? If, as you suggest, the development of Russia and their political, economic, and geostrategic development has been in large part certainly not due to this man alone, um, he, he nonetheless is holding something seemingly fairly tenuous together. If he himself is not responsible for those developments, which I think it's quite clear he's not. You make a very compelling case in your book. He is nonetheless at the helm of some kind of political institutional formation that is holding together a vast set of uh, fractious contradictions or what have you. So what will come of Russia after Putin? This is a good question, and it's something that people in Russia are actually already thinking about. 
Um, I mean, Putin just won re-election in March of this year to a six-year term, so he's in office unless something remarkable happens until 2024. Um, but people's minds in Russia are already turning to that year and what's going to happen and whether the system can be handed over to someone else and whether Putin is just going to retire and you know enjoy his uh, enjoy his wealth somewhere quiet. Uh, without interfering in national political life. I can't imagine him getting a dog and taking up painting, say like uh, George W. Bush here did in the, in the States. I just can't imagine uh, Putin going off into the sunset like that. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. And certainly there is a lot of speculation that he could get the constitution revised to stand again and just keep going until he dies. I'm not so sure, actually. I think... I think underneath Putin's undoubted willingness to use force and lack of scruple, if you like, he is at least to some degree a legitimist, right? He, he, uh, he left office, he put in his chosen successor, Dmitry Medvedev, in 2008, and then he returned in 2012, and it was all formally, according to the letter of the Constitution, totally correct. Um, he... So, and I think he would fundamentally, I mean, you know, this is pure speculation, of course, but I imagine that he would quite like to be the Russian president who handed over a stable system to a successor. The only one who's really managed to do that in God knows how long. I think the other, so the real question is whether he can find a successor who will do for him what he did for Yeltsin, guarantee immunity, protect him from pursuit by, you know, the populace with the pitchforks so he can die of old age fly fishing somewhere in the uh russian outdoors i i i yeah i i don't well or, or rather i don't have any particular reason to think that he would love to be in power until he dies um i don't think there's any particular evidence for that except that he's just continued to be in power since the year 2000 but um i think the real question underneath it is how the system itself is going to perform as he nears the end of his term. Um, so in some ways, maybe this is all a little abstract until we get to 2023 and the question of the succession is becoming very pressing. And at that point, by that time, all kinds of factions and individuals will have been maneuvering for position. Uh, Putin will or will not pick one of them as his likely uh, successor. Or by that point, he will have revised the constitution because he doesn't trust anyone to, to safeguard the system. But, I would say that the question of Putin's personal choices, personal survival is really bound up with how stable this thing is, this, this political architecture, this uh, economic system all bound up together, how stable that is in the current climate. And that really depends on a host of things. I think that depends on the prevailing economic winds, right? The, uh, the oil price above all, it depends on whether relations with the West reach some even more catastrophic turn. If there's some heaven forbid military confrontation of a large scale kind. And again, it's, it's very hard to read the runes on that. My personal suspicion is that the system itself will be able to withstand those kind of external pressures uh, and Putin would be able to hand over to a chosen successor if he wanted. But the question is whether the system itself, with or without Putin, is able to to survive in the long run. Um, and that seems more dubious to me. I think one of the things that this this uh, 
imitation democratic system, one of the problems that this imitation democratic system has is that that gap between democratic legitimation and the actual prevention of democratic outcomes in elections, that just becomes more glaring uh, over time. And it means that elections are always a crisis for this regime. And the problem that Putin in particular has with this system is that the the political parties that have been created to be the kind of conveyor belts, the relays for this uh, for this system are not especially reliable. They're not popular. They don't have any real mass base um, that, that could be turned out uh, in elections, you know, from here to kingdom come to keep the system going forever. So in the medium term, there's a political uh, void, I think, where something will have to be constructed that will see this system through. And I think that's the real nut that, that Putin has yet to crack. Uh, because if he has that supporting architecture for this system, uh, then the choice of successor is not such a problem. Right. When we could spend the rest of the day speculating about how Russia might align itself uh, in the wake of what could possibly be something like a, a little bit more than a trade war between U.S. and China. That's, that's, uh, if, if we continue arresting uh, Chinese CEOs on um, – uh, embargo, trade embargo violations, or what have you? Uh, you know, we we could see uh, a much more bellicose geopolitical situation, and we, we could speculate about how Russia would fall on that. Um, I would I would assume that they would fall in line much closer with uh, their Chinese brethren. Although there's an international capitalist sector in Russia that would really uh, lo- be loath to to find themselves cut off from the flows of U.S. dollars. Um, a lot to think about here as the situation possibly heats up. Who knows what the Trump administration has up its sleeve in its heightened tensions with China, at least Chinese capital right now. Any thoughts on that before we move to the big, the big finale, the big question to end, end up the interview? Yeah, I think the relationship with China is a really interesting one for Russia. I think for a long time, this has been uh, talked about as, as the wave of the future, right? That, that, Russia is increasingly going to align with China, and it's been happening steadily but slowly. Um, and one of the effects of the of the sanctions regime that's been in place since 2014 has been to accelerate that turn towards China. Uh, above all, economically, um, strategically, I'm not so clear that that's the case. But um, but it's interesting that even now, I mean, China is certainly individually, I think, Russia's largest uh, trade partner, something like 20% uh, of its exports and imports, uh, if I remember correctly. But Europe as a block accounts for 50% of Russia's trade. So even though China is becoming increasingly important and accounts for a great deal of Russia's uh, economic links, uh, Europe is still much more important. And I think that fundamental pattern is going to take a long time to undo. I mean, you know, your listeners are probably aware of the geography of this, but I think it really does matter that uh, 75% of Russia's population lives in European Russia, that is west of the Urals, which is only 25% of the territory. But, you know, the country as a whole is really tilted towards the west rather than the east, and its economic infrastructure likewise. And that does make a difference. So I think the, 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 the underlying pattern of the Russian economy is going to take a long time to tilt in the Chinese direction. I mean, the, you know, these sort of globe-spanning 
Chinese projects like the Belt and Road Initiative. The Russians are very keen on that. They're sort of very interested to see how they can like hook onto these large scale projects that the Chinese are, are contemplating. Uh, and if that succeeds, then that would give Russia a kind of a close sort of subordinate partnership to Chinese global economic expansion. And so that might be one route out that the Russian elite is considering if the, the tensions of the West continue to worsen. Um, I guess the other thing that's important in this, uh, I, I should perhaps have mentioned this earlier, but the fact is that the economic links with China and above all with Europe are very important to Russia. The economic links with the US, uh, much less so. Uh, and certainly from the other perspective, the US is... Uh, Russia does not loom especially large in the U.S.'s foreign trade links. So there's a sense in which these these decisions, on the economic level at least, in the U.S. are being made somewhat cost-free. Uh, and that is not true of any of the European elites. You know, German capital, Dutch capital, British capital certainly. They're, they're looking at what is happening in relations with Russia with some concern because they have a lot at stake. Uh, and the Russians likewise. So really, you could imagine the next few years as being a somewhat tense economic climate unfolding in which Russia is sort of jockeying uneasily between the US, Europe and China, tilting increasingly towards China, but really trying to keep all of these things in play. Right, that's fascinating. And you can see uh, the heat that's building between the leaders of Europe and the Trump administration and Trump in particular, uh, growing, and I'm sure that's uh, what you just laid out there is is a, a major cause of their displeasure with the bellicose kind of uh, careless nature that uh, the Trump administration deals with trade and and so on. Uh, if if the U.S. has very little skin in the game, uh, at least with respect to trade, uh, we he can make a lot of noise and not have to bear any of the costs. Whereas our so-called allies in Europe are the ones that are are bearing the cost. And so this is interesting. We'll, we'll have to wait and see how this plays out. Uh, this uh, We've got uh, quite a character in, in the hall in the executive office right now in the United States, and who the hell knows what's going to happen in the coming years. But uh, I think you've given us a lot of outlines to, to, to see, to watch and see what happens and to try to uh, read between the lines there. So the big final question, you didn't mention this in your book, but we would be, we would be remiss in not talking about this at least very briefly at the end of the interview here. Russia, uh, you're, you are talking about Putin and Russia in a way that's quite contradictory, quite contrary to the way that is presented in the mainstream media in the United States. If you talked about this book in parts of the UK, we could just stop the interview here. Uh, if you talked about this book, this book in France, uh, we, could just, we could just cut it off right here. We could both go about our business. Uh, but because all the dead pundits are making a lot of noise about how Russia is undermining American democracy, unfortunately, I have to ask this final question. What do you make of Russia Gate? Is Russia and Putin uh, this big bad, uh, you know, this big bad bully who's trying to overthrow American democracy? Um, is this overstated? What has been the role of Russia in dif what is it dis disinformatia is this what they're calling it now and uh, the uh, the handful of self-appointed wannabe Russia pundits in the mainstream media have gotten hold of a couple of Russian words and they're throwing them around as if they know things. Uh, what do you make of this RussiaGate situation aside from it being just utter bollocks? Yeah, I didn't really want to address it too much in the book because um, partly because I think 
it is very exaggerated and disproportionate the attention that is paid to this phenomenon, but partly also because the empirical facts of what has been happening are not fully clear. So as an object of analysis, the whole Russiagate question has not, I think, fully come into focus in a way that could be made meaningful. Um, I mean, it's certainly clear that Russia did try and influence the outcome of the US elections and engaged in a variety of, you know, media tactics and uh, trolling and, you know, internet meddling of various kinds. But what I would say is that there is no evidence that I've seen that they materially affected the outcome of the election. Now, I think a lot of uh, US liberal ideologues and the Democratic Party establishment are very bent on, you know, propagating this narrative that Russia stole the election, that Russia put Trump in the White House. And I just think that's empirically not proven, even according to their own accounts, you know, these long exposés in the New York Times, the New Yorker, book length treatments of it, even those exposés, when they describe the facts of the 2016 election, they're all forced to concede that there is no provable link between Russia's efforts and the actual electoral outcomes, whereas there is a host of other factors that could independently account for this, uh, you know, disaster as far as the Clinton campaign was concerned. And I think um, really what's happening here is, I think, a visceral reaction on the part of Americans to having another country meddling in your affairs at all. I think people are not used to this in the US. Um, And I think also, there's a. It's part of a, a sort of larger ideological impulse to reject Trump as a foreign phenomenon, right? He's been imposed on us from outside, literally a foreign power put him there, rather than you know him actually winning the election. I mean, obviously, he did not win the popular vote, even with supposed Russian meddling. So it's you know, it's actually the Russian. Sorry, excuse me. It's actually the U.S. electoral system with all its bizarre antiquated deformations that put him in office, even if you accept that Russia affected the vote tally, which there is no indication right. it did. So the attempt to absolve, uh, the attempt to absolve uh, us from guilt in this uh, you know, association uh, fall flat even on the basis of uh, our, our own claims in that respect. I hadn't quite thought about that before because it seems clear that people are just you – know, this was a product of denial and trauma. Um, among sort of the, the liberal elite and particularly the uh, chattering classes in the pundit, the pundit, the punditosphere, as I've called them. Um, so it seems to me that, you know, we can just wrap up on this. It seems to me that if, I want you to sort of speculate and give me your, your fully fleshed out take on this and that it seems clear that uh, Russiagate emerged at the precise moment when the legitimacy of the, you know, the, the Hillary, the Clinton, Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party was uh, falling apart. They had just lost an embarrassing election, as you mentioned, and uh, the Russiagate stuff emerged as a sort of ready-made way to distract people from the abject failures of the uh, American political and economic elites. And uh, what's your take on that? Because in a sense, that's true. Uh, But as you point to in your book, uh, the the Russiagate, uh, the foundations of what would become Russiagate were not – uh, developed sort of a whole cloth by the kind of opportunistic wing of the Democratic Party, that narrative was kind of already there in the ether, in a sense. Yeah, certainly. I mean, Russia's certainly been a very convenient villain to uh, lay this electoral meddling 
uh, at the door of, if you like. Um, I mean, certainly there was, there has been, I think, a deliberate attempt by the, the the Clinton campaign and by people in the Democratic Party establishment to to put out this this story that it was the Russians that that, that put. Trump in the White House, but there's also more broadly, I think, in the culture of uh, liberal America, uh, a predisposition to to find some external force to blame for this otherwise incomprehensible set of events. So, so as you as you put it, it is really a mechanism of denial, um, and I think it has actually a number of very very bad effects, like very poisoning effects, because it turns any kind of counter arguments into a form of treason. You know, we see this word bandied around an awful lot. And I think right. that it, that can only have very damaging effects on on the political climate, on political discourse, and I think people will will regret that very quickly. I mean, and the other thing is, it really distracts from more useful, constructive things that uh, the Democrats themselves could be doing uh, that would be more useful to them. I mean, what it really amounts to underneath it all is a, is a just total unwillingness to admit political defeat, not just electoral defeat, not just the way that the votes fell out. Uh, within the electoral college and all of those other quite specific things about the electoral system, but actually a, the defeat of a political project, the defeat of uh, Clintonism, of a certain kind of centrist liberalism, you know, that project has really fallen apart in a way that people are not really facing up to. And Russia Gate is a way of continuing to not face up to that rather than building a coherent successor to that political project. I mean, I don't particularly wish them well in this uh uh, endeavor, but you could imagine some more creatively minded centrist Democrat putting together a much better project that was more coherent, that did not rely on blaming Russia for something uh, that they were fully brought on themselves, in my view. So, you know, there are a number of things that Democrats could be doing, as I mentioned, that would help them electorally and would be more coherent. And you could imagine, you know, a tilt to the left uh, on a number of fronts that would. I think instantly improve their electoral fortunes in a number of places. And the fact that there, and, and there are of course, plenty of signs that there are plenty of people in the democratic party who are taking up these ideas and going with them. And, you know, for example, the whole conversation around Medicare, um, has, has been transformed. And so I think, you know, it may be a case that the, it may be the case that the Russiagate narrative slowly falls away as something more positive and constructive takes its place. That would be the optimistic reading, but there's, there is this sort of trauma reaction and the need to find and blame an external force. But once they realize that nothing positive can flow from that politically in the domestic U S context, even the Democrats one imagines will have to realize that they need to come up with something else. So my projection would be that Russia gate dies down eventually and that it's just seen as this weird hysterical blip. But who knows, you know, these like clouds of ideological uh, production can just continue indefinitely. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, it could just push any given US administration, Republican or Democrat into increasingly hostile measures against Russia in a way that really just makes for a very difficult global climate and heaven forbid, like actual war. So I think there is a there's a real uh, problem in terms of where the Democrats think this Russiagate thing is leading. Like, what is the goal of this? And that's not clear to me. It's funny that, uh, you know, the American political establishment so readily accuses uh, Putin of, uh, you know, uh, of calling forth the specter of Crimea 
every time his popularity begins to, to sink uh, or every time there's a certain kind of a political or economic uh, crisis of legitimacy inside that nation, which we can talk about. We could talk about that. And that's that's for another episode. Uh, but 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 it's funny that the American political establishment so readily, you know, will, will sort of uh, make that accusation when it's so in- unbelievably obvious that that's exactly what they're doing with respect uh, to their Russophobia and this, this whole Russiagate phenomenon. Um, that it's a really uh, naked attempt to to hold on to power and to you know disrupt this burgeoning uh, social democratic democratic socialist wave that's occurring uh, across across the United States. And I, I hope you're right. I hope it won't succeed. But we've seen it morph and transform in a number of ways. And I try to remain optimistic that uh, you know the the combination of the social movements. And uh, the gra- at the grassroots level, and then some really inspiring and inspired political actors, uh, such as an a- Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, for example, can sort of shine some light on that absurdity um, in front of the cameras, having the, having the 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 bully pulpit in the way that she uh, does now, in a way that we certainly don't, and not even yourself uh, has over at New Left Review. Um, but, uh, but I guess, I guess we'll see any parting words, uh, for the Yanks over here. You yourself, you found yourself tangled between many social formations, many political, social, um, economic context, uh, straddling the lines between the UK, uh, your home and, um, you know, Russia, which you've been thoroughly enmeshed in that society. And now, uh, the Americas, because you're taking on Latin America in your next writing project as well. Um, what are some of the keys to uh, the kind of political moment that the Americans uh, find themselves in, in right now in terms of this social democratic wave? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's been most surprising to me about the last, you know, three or four years uh, in global politics is the, the continued, I wouldn't say vitality, but the continued usefulness, if you like, of political structures that I personally thought were long dead, you know, hollow shells. So the main example I have in mind is the the Labour Party in the UK, sure, which, sure. you know, since the arrival of Jeremy Corbyn and sort of influx of new members or return of old members, actually often, uh, has been really reinvigorated as, a, as a, a much more social democratic, you know, and certainly further left uh, of where it used to be, uh, political structure. Uh, that that is at least proposing and trying to put forward an alternative to the current politics of austerity in the UK. And that, uh, I mean, they're not in power. Who knows when and if there'll be another election in the UK. But but certainly I find that quite optimistic. I think the US is actually, even though there are some similarities between the Bernie Sanders moment and the Corbyn phenomenon, I think it's, it's a very different political system, unfortunately, uh, because... The, the sheer influence of and the weight of money in U.S. politics is much, much greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are these shoots of of something else popping through. There's Ocasio-Cortez, as you mentioned, uh, but there are there's a whole levy of much more radical, very interesting democratic uh, representatives and candidates at different levels. And so some kind of renewal is happening in the Democratic Party, for sure. Uh, the question is how far left they can push the center of gravity of that party um, and, and whether they can sustain some kind of left pole within the Democratic Party or not. Uh, I mean, 
I'd love to see that happen, and I'd love to see them pull the rest of the party away from its you know centrist liberal commitments. Um, but I think it might take a long time, and there's a lot of obstacles in the way. Um, and I guess I'm yeah I'm I'm. I'm even split over whether to be optimistic about it or not, I guess is my current feeling that the, the overall climate is just so very discouraging that, that one's optimism about, uh, you know, relatively small scale, but very encouraging things. I think one needs to keep these two things in proportion. Um, and that's very hard to do, you know, given the discouragement not to feel disproportionately encouraged by small good things that happen. Um, but you know, in the long run, I'm not convinced that the Democratic Party can be made into a social democratic formation like the Labour Party in the UK was and could be again. I just think that that's not how the structure of, you know, I mean, I'm not especially well informed on this and someone else will be able to correct me and uh, give me a history lesson on this. But my, my feeling is really that, you know, if you want a consequential push to the left in the US, you will need an independent party of Labour. Um, and you know, that's, that's a long-term project. It's a serious thing. People have been thinking about it for a long time and trying to do it uh, from within the Democratic Party and from outside it. And that's really the horizon that one has to have in mind, not just a takeover of the Democratic Party and a kind of minor shove to the left, but some really much more substantial overhaul of the entire political system. So, you know, I think everyone is doing, you know, not everyone, excuse me. I think there's a lot of important work being done and people are really putting in a lot of time and sacrificing a lot. Um, and I would encourage the left in its efforts to uh, overhaul this system, but just be aware it's going to take a long time. Uh, but it will be worthwhile. That's right. Leo Panich came on the show, I believe, in his first appearance last year and sort of uh, said something very similar as a Canadian, though. And he said, you know, but you guys are lucky. You guys are lucky that you don't have the remnants of a social democratic party because that means that you're not constrained by the baggage of history, the weight by the weight of history and the sheer force of the kind of stickiness of institutions and, and outlooks. Uh, we have the ability to do something potentially radically new and different here in the US. And uh, although the deck is stacked against us right now, I think that's that's encouraging. So uh, lots to talk about here. Very quickly on the way out, you're writing about Latin America. Any ideas about uh, to w what kind of approach you're going to take there? There's so much going on. What's your particular angle? Um, I mean, what I'm working on is a historical project about the left in the 20s and 30s, and particularly the relationship between uh, ideas about the nation state and race and class. Uh, so in some ways, I see it as... Um, a set of arguments that have a certain contemporary relevance, uh, right. even though the, the, the whole context is very far removed from Latin America now. Um, nonetheless, there, I hope that people would find some kind of strategic connection between the idea of how to coordinate these different struggles, these struggles against different kinds of oppression uh, into some kind of coherent agenda. And that was really the problem that people were grappling with in the 20s and 30s, I think, uh, not especially successfully. Uh, and they didn't have the conceptual tools or the language they needed. But I think a lot of these questions are still very actual. You know, we can see this, you know, in contemporary Bolivia and Ecuador with the relationship between the uh, pink tide governments and indigenous movements, for example. And we can see it in, you know, until recently playing out in Brazil with the relationship between the PT administrations and uh, Afro-Brazilian rights um, 
affirmative action programs and obviously that's all been put in abeyance by the arrival of Bolsonaro but I think that in these very uh, heterogeneous unequal societies that is a real strategic problem um, that I hope to be uh, exploring both historically and following that through into the present. Well, that's a big topic, but uh, I'm sure you're capable of uh, producing something uh, synthetic and organic and, and seemingly coherent out of a mishmash of history and uh, difficult circumstances uh, that have been faced over the past uh, century. But uh, good luck to you, Tony Wood. Thank you so much. You'll have to come back on Dead Punnett Society to talk to us in a year or thereabouts uh, about your more recent research. But thanks for talking about Russia without Putin. Folks should go out and pick up this book from Verso. It is now available. It has been on the shelves for approximately three weeks. Um, it is incredibly rich, and I have to tell you, I'm a relative neophyte, a uh, relative know-nothing when it comes to contemporary uh, Russian politics, although friend of the show and recent guest Sean Guillory has uh, tried to set me right on multiple occasions, I'm still learning, and actually Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia Blog Podcast uh, people will remember him from last month on DPS. He recommended this book to me some months ago. So, uh, yeah, uh, thanks again to Sean for the suggestion. And thanks to you, Tony Wood, for coming on DPS. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that's a wrap. Thanks again to Tony Wood for chatting with us about that new book, Russia Without Putin, everybody should go pick up that book. I know I say that at the end of every episode, and I mean it at the end of every episode. I'm not just blowing smoke. I would never do that to you guys. I have the pick of the litter when it comes to bringing on these guests. I could choose anyone, and I choose the people that I do for a reason because I think they're, the, they're some of the best out there. But uh, you got to get this book for a different reason. Because you know what? I bet that you know fuck all about contemporary Russian politics. That's why you need to pick up this book. Because I certainly did not. Uh, it's definitely a black hole in most of our political educations, I would say. Even people like you and I, and if you are a listener of this show, you are likely a cut above the average person walking on the street right now with respect to your knowledge of politics, society, and history. And uh, even amongst us, I think that Russian society and politics constitutes a tremendous black hole in our knowledge. This book will get you up to speed in a hurry. In 200 some odd pages, you'll have a pretty solid grasp of the social power bases in Russian society, which I think is really the key to understanding Russian politics. Anyway, everybody go check out that book. Once again, as a quick reminder, we're going to be doing the Socialist Rundown. The premiere episode is going to be appearing at the end of this week. That's going to be a podcast of socialist news and views. We're going to be talking about the who's, what's, where's, when's, and why's of the most important stories of the day. And uh, you're going to get a little socialist spin there, too. We're going to cut through some of the smoke and mirrors of the liberal and mainstream press and their presentation of the stories, which, as you know, it's almost always completely full of shit. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button at the $10 per month level and you'll get access to the weekly rundown, uh, weekly rundown podcast. And that will be every week, as the name should suggest. Additionally, uh, we've got a B-side coming out later this week as well, perhaps the weekend. It's going to be on the Green New Deal featuring Matt Huber, friend of the show. He's a really smart guy. He's written quite a lot on the ins and outs of what a Green New Deal might look like and what the politics 
uh, of a socialist uh, kind of uh, approach to that might be. And that is timely as hell. And patrons are going to get a first stab at that episode. I will likely be unlocking it in the coming weeks. Uh, perhaps. We'll see. But uh, for sure, you're going to have to be a patron at the $5 per month level in order to get that in the coming days. Likewise, we've got some exciting news coming up for the working class heroes tier. That is for the people who have so generously donated, contributed one hour's worth of their wage per month to our project. We have announced that our first book will be Leo Panich and Sam Gindon's book that we discussed with Leo a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the details on that are being ironed out as we speak. And uh, people shouldn't miss it because that is one of the most important little books in in recent memory. It's, uh, as I joked with Leo on air, we had Mao's Little Red Book in the 1960s. This should be considered the Little Black Book uh, because it is so chock full of insights for what a democratic socialist transition to socialism might look like that it deserves canonical status in our in our moments. All right, so everybody head over to patreon.com slash Pundits. Figure out which tier works for you. We all have different budgets and priorities. In any case, we desperately need your support in order to keep this project growing and running and thriving. As a bit of personal news, I'm, I'm sticking at this at the very end of the show because I know only the diehards are listening still. Um, I have stepped back from my academic career for the time being to take on this project full time which means that your financial contributions to this project are more important now than ever. I don't like to make this about me, uh, but needless to say, without me, without my ability to sustain myself, to feed myself, clothe myself, and pay my rent, I can't bring you this project. I can't continue to do this. So your generous support means more to me now than it ever has, perhaps. So head over to Patreon and... uh, Donate if you are financially secure enough to do so. All right. Until the B-side, which will be dropping in a couple of days, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...